Oh, that was excellent. That was, keep, keep that energy. Um, good morning, my name is Kayla, and I am part of the Discovery Deacon team here. Sometimes I'm up here as a host, um, and I have to say it is a great privilege to be with you speaking today. Um, I would like to start off our time with a confession, as one does. Um, everybody? People. They see, thank you. And I don't discriminate against list mediums either, okay? You've got a lot of options before you write. You've got paper planners. You've got apps. Um, you've got sticky notes, Excel workbooks I'm particularly fond of. And then there's always the back of my hand, right? So these are all beautiful options to me. And uh, if... I've always loved structure, but then I think my college experience really reinforced and even exaggerated certain tendencies in me. So like, I'm a very proud Aggie, don't get me wrong, but can we talk about how crazy the quarter system truly is? All the students said amen at that moment. Um, if you don't know, UC Davis runs on these 10-week quarters, although there are only three of them, I don't know why that is in an academic year. And then at the beginning of the quarter, it's like you buy your books, you know, and then you go and take a little nap and you wake up and you're already late for a midterm because everything is going so quickly. Um, so you have to like plan and live your life in these very short and intense cycles. And then if you have the joy of taking summer sessions, um, which I always called victory laps, um, those 10-week quarters are boiled down into six weeks, 10 weeks of content into six weeks. So for four years, I constantly anticipated the future and I was just sprinting towards the next class, the next test, the next grade. And this lifestyle certainly influenced my way of being in the world. Right? You could say that this was a rhythm that formed me. And to this day, I still keep sticky notes everywhere um, to jot down like reminders and lists. Um, and then sometimes when I'm in my house, I catch myself and I'm like, wait, do I live with a conspiracy theorist? And I have to clean up really quick just to make myself feel better. Jokes aside, I am not making an argument this morning that lists and planning are bad, okay? These are great tools um, at our fingertips, and we all have to get things done. But if I'm being honest with myself and a hundred of my closest friends, um, sometimes what I'm actually living out is a need for control and a need to measure my performance, right? A, a way to build security for myself. And whether we identify as list people or not, we are immersed in a culture that is moving at this frenetic, unsustainable pace. And it connects our worth to how we perform. And I don't think that any of us escapes internalizing ideas around hustling and performing and expressing them in all kinds of ways. But in this community, we actually believe that there is a better way of living. There's a freedom from performance that we find in life with God through his invitation to rest. At Discovery, we engage in spiritual practices to be formed in the likeness of Jesus and experience the abundant life that he promises us. And one of these practices is Sabbath. Sabbath comes from the Hebrew term Shabbat, and that means to cease or to stop working. Um, it's typically described as that weekly day of rest that we hear about, right? It's observed by Jewish people and some Christians as well. And if you think about it, 
Um, it's a paradox to practice ceasing. For me, this invites all sorts of questions and frustrations, like, what am I supposed to even do or not? And some handouts in the lobby that you are welcome to peruse. Um, and then the digital versions of our resources are always available on our app. And actually, I think the best resource is engaging this topic in your neighborhood communities, because that's where you can share how folks are actually working this out in their real life. But this morning, I want us to consider our posture towards Sabbath and not necessarily how we're executing this practice. Um, and to frame this conversation, this is a great thought from a guy named Rich Velotis. Sabbath keeping might be the greatest sign of grace because it's while we are intentionally accomplishing nothing that God loves us. Please pray with me. God, thank you that you have created us in your image, God, and you created rest, God, and you invite us to reflect you and your goodness through your rhythms. Um, so God, please show us how we can participate more and more in your nature and form us in your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. So our main text this morning is Matthew 12, 1 through 14. So I'm going to go over that. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So it's important to remember that Jesus was ethnically and culturally Jewish, right? He and his disciples um, all observed Jewish customs, including the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is central to the Jewish identity for a number of reasons, right? It's a big part of the creation story in Genesis. And then you see it embedded and expressed throughout the whole narrative of the Old Testament. Um, God is constantly offering it as both a gift and a command to his followers um, to form their identity as his people. Uh, and in our passage, Jesus is with his inner circle of disciples out in a grain field on the Sabbath day. And his friends are hungry. Um, and being surrounded by food, they just grab some grain and snack on it. This is a very human thing to do. Don't leave me by the chip bowl at the party, okay? The, the, the problem is, is that plucking grain technically counts as work. And this is on this very long list of Sabbath no-no's. The Pharisees, um, who are the religious leaders in Jesus' time, 
are all about the list. And this was rooted in list making and list keeping. But Jesus has a way of subverting expectations and his response to them is no exception. He points to these other ways in which the Sabbath rules have technically been broken. So first he tells us the story, right, in which King David, this is one of their all-time Jewish cultural heroes, breaks this big Sabbath rule because he and his friends are hungry. And then he brings up this paradox that in order for the Jewish Sabbath to even function, the priests have to work during it, right? But somehow the people of this time were able to accept that and hold that intention. So what is Jesus saying here? Is, is it that the Sabbath isn't important, that God's people should stop resting on that day? No, I think he makes a different point and he also has this mic drop. Something greater than the temple is here. The temple was meant to house God's presence, but Jesus is here among them as God in the flesh, and he's teaching, and he's healing, and he's hugging people. And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God prioritizes our access to him by removing barriers, even and maybe especially the ones that we construct ourselves. So he's saying we don't ever have to earn our way to God's presence, right? That's what makes it mercy. It's always available. And then Jesus declares that he is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath day is really about him and just being with him. Right after saying something greater than the temple is here, he actually goes to the temple. So now he's in this sacred space on a sacred day. And the Pharisees see another opportunity to try and test him. Right, they ask him in front of a man with a shriveled hand if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. First of all, rude. Uh, but this is framed very intentionally, right? Jesus responds with um, this very practical answer that still elevates the conversation to something higher. He says, would you let your sheep lay injured and isolated just because it's the Sabbath? No, of, of course you wouldn't do that, right? And people are always more important than animals, of course, it's right to be kind on the Sabbath. And then he moves beyond the debate, and he just heals the man right there, he, saying after establishing he himself is, is greater than the temple in the temple. So if at this point, hunger and healing have been prioritized over these Sabbath laws, as Jesus lives out the words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right? He's saying there's something so much more important to him than the structure of Sabbath itself. And if practices form us and our way of being in the world, then the way we practice matters a great deal. Right? This is why we're talking about posture and what forms us, what shapes us. Formation happens in every part of our life, right? The things that we think of as spiritual and even the seemingly unspiritual things. And I can give you an example from my own life. Um, one translation of our story refers to the Pharisees as the fault-finding Pharisees, which I thought was very, like, cute and sassy. Uh, until recently, when I caught myself looking for fault in someone else. Um, for months, I had repeatedly been nursing these frustrations towards someone in my life and focusing on how they were not meeting my expectations, right? Over and over again, until I was looking for it in them. That kind of list keeping brought out the worst in me. 
And I don't share that to invite anyone towards like legalism or like feeling bad, but simply to say that deformed postures sneak up on us and they cause all kinds of pain and dysfunction. So I just think we do well to pay attention to how we're being formed. What are we doing over and over again and how are we doing it? There are fault-finding Pharisees all around us, but then they can also be inside of us. And when it comes to practicing the Sabbath, if we believe that we have to earn God's grace or earn rest, then there's really only two outcomes, right? You're going to feel like you're nailing it um, and get security from your list-making and list-keeping, or you're going to feel like a failure when you are inevitably confronted with the reality of your own humanity. Engaging in any spiritual practice from a posture of performance will never form us in the likeness of a loving God. We see these deeply religious people ignoring hunger and healing for the sake of their list-keeping. And in contrast to that, God cares way more about human needs than religious sacrifice. Rich Velotis says, Practices don't save us or make God love us more. We are saved by God's free and faithful love in Christ. God's love is steadfast, meaning there's nothing we can do to make him love us more, and there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. Rather, these practices are meant to help us receive and express God's love in deeply formed ways. We need to be formed by the love of God, but we can only humbly receive that through grace. Um, I started er, uh, engaging in our practices from a very different place, actually just in the past year. Um, I've always had some anxious tendencies, and for decades, this was my posture in daily life, and it shaped my perception of everything, including my relationship with God. I would cycle through feeling afraid that I wasn't enough and trying harder to overcome the shame, and then, of course, I would just fail and start the cycle over. So even when I was doing things, spiritual things, right, like praying or Bible reading or serving, I was actually being formed by shame. Do you see the difference? That is a deformed spirituality. And then everything came screeching to a halt this past spring when I lost a dearly wanted pregnancy. And you understand intellectually, right, that that's a very painful thing to go through, But then eventually, I was struck by the fact that I miss somebody that I have never met. And over time, I started to understand why I didn't need to meet my baby to miss them. I loved my baby before they had a face that I could find beautiful, before they had talent I could admire, before they had a mind I could engage with before they had any academic or professional achievements, before they could do anything for me. I delighted in their very being. I anticipated them. And this realization has changed me. I think it's been an invitation to experience the depth that God has for us, the depth of the love that God has for us. Look at this image from Psalm 139 with me. You and read it earlier. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I don't know if you hear that, but God has loved you since you were unformed. From the very spark of you, before any of your days came to be, before you had a face anyone could find beautiful, before you had any talent that anyone could admire, before you had a mind to engage with, before you had any academic or professional achievements, before you could do anything for anyone. The giver of your existence has always loved you in your inmost being. Your foundation is love. And I don't think it's enough to read or to hear this, right? We have to let it form us inside of us. I'm going to ask the band to please come back up. David Benner says, knowing God's love demands that we receive God's love experientially, not simply as a theory. Personal knowledge is never a simply matter of the head. Because it is rooted in experience, it is grounded in the deep places in our being. The things we know from experience, we know beyond belief. So when we invite you to Sabbath, we're inviting you to cease, to practice receiving God's love in your inmost being over and over again until they're important with beyond belief. Another important way that we experientially receive the love of God is through the practice of communion. But before we head to the table, before you meet with Jesus, sit with this image of God hovering over you in your inmost being, delighting in you. If you're comfortable, close your eyes and open your hands as this is read. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well.